Medicine Rounds. Uh, I'm Deepu Gowda. I'm a general internist here at Columbia. And I'm also the course director for a course called Foundations of Clinical Medicine. I hope some of our students are here. Um, it's a course in the first and second year of medical school where we take students to the bedside and we teach them the physical exam. And we, te we teach them the interview. And students start to get a sense of the challenges and also the wonders that are involved in receiving patient accounts. Um, and it's our pleasure today with the program of narrative medicine to partner with the literary journal Granta um, as they launch their issue on medicine. Granta describes their mission as the belief in the power and urgency of the story, both in fiction and nonfiction, and the story's supreme ability to describe, illuminate, and make real. Something that is very pertinent to the world at large, but we think very pertinent to our community here as physicians and clinicians. The editor of Granta, John Freeman, will serve as our moderator today. Uh, Mr. Freeman is a writer and literary critic. His writings have been published frequently and widely. Um, he served as the president of the National Book Critics Circle before becoming the editor of Granta in 2009. We're very pleased to have him here with us today, and I wanted to ask you to join me in welcoming John Freeman. Hi, uh, thank you so much for coming. Um, I'm really happy to be here, not the least because uh, one in 10 Grant subscribers is actually a physician. Um, so if uh, one in 10 of you fit that mold, thank you very much. Um, now if the other 90% would please join along, um, we, we would be, have a much more sustainable um, business model. The other reason why I'm here is uh, I wanted to be a physician. Um, like many people growing up, I interned at a hospital, I candy striped, uh, and around the same time, my dad took me to a bookstore, and um, he was not a reader, but he, he could read titles. Uh, and he picked out a title off the shelf called The Doctor Stories by William Carlos Williams, which is a fabulous book if you haven't read it. Um, and it's basically a series of fictional stories about his visits to patients in the country. Um, and what that book did was turn me on to writing, um, and I turned away from being a doctor. But I kept that interest because I always find that um, there are so many ways that we understand our, our lives. Our, our lives are in some ways the stories we tell about ourselves. And um, there's no more important story that we tell about ourselves than the story that we tell a physician at some point, and the story that our body is telling ourselves. We have to listen to it, and then the physician has to listen to and interpret those stories. And I feel uh, in writing about medicine um, so often um, we, we get lost, at least this is why we put together this issue of Granta, is that there's, there's a lot of questions about policy. There's a lot of questions about science. Um, but it's, medicine to me feels like an essentially humanist art. And it's, it's for that reason to me not that different um, than writing. Both of them require a craft and ability to listen. And the three panelists that we have with us um, do that to an exceptional degree um, across several different genres. Um, if they could come up now, it would be less like a parade of awesomeness. Um, they will just sit down and, and, and be awesome. Um, yeah, it's a bit of a dating game. Um, they don't know that they are all gonna go on a date later tonight. And Chris is gonna blog about it. Um, uh, I'm gonna start on, on the far right. This is um, Ike Anya, who's Born in Nigeria and qualified as a, at the College of Medicine of the University of Nigeria, he is a consultant associate director of public health and an honorary lecturer at Imperial College. 
He sits on the Epidemiology and Black and Ethnic Minority Health Section Councils of the Royal Society of Medicine. Founding Secretary of the Abuja Literary Society, Anya co-edited the Weaver Bird Collection, an anthology of new Nigerian writing. His poetry, essays, and short fiction have been published in the UK, Nigeria, America, and India. Um, Anya is also the co-editor of the Nigerian Health Watch blog, and this is his first piece for Granta. Um, it's a wonderful piece. Uh, Chris Adrian is in the middle, you probably all know him, um, but I'll whip through his 6,000 um, graduate degrees. Uh, from the University of Florida, the MFA in uh, Creative Writing from Iowa, um, an MD from Eastern Virginia Medical School. Um, did you graduate from the Divinity School too? He has a Divinity degree too, so he can marry you. Um, or tell you what, um, whether God exists or does not exist. Um, he's written three uh, novels, Gobs Greets, The Children's Hospital, and The Great Night. Um, his short stories have appeared in many different journals and were collected in The Better Angel. The New Yorker um, magazine, I keep hearing about it. I've never seen one copy. Um, selected him for his 20 best under 40 issue of Writers to Watch. Um, Chris combines his interest in medicine and theology and writes stories about children, doctors, and hospitals and um, teddy bears. Uh, <laughs> at the far end is Amit Majmandar, who's a diagnostic nuclear radiologist, novelist, and poet. Majmandar's poems and essays have appeared in The New Yorker, The Atlantic Monthly, The New York Review of Books, National Poetry Review, and Best American Poetry. His debut novel, Partitions, was published in 2011. He's also the author of two poetry collections, Zero Degrees, Zero Degrees, is that the way to say it? And Heaven and Earth, which won the 2011 Donald Justice Prize. Majmandar is currently working on his second novel, um, The Abundance. I want to start uh, at the far end um, with Amit, um, since he worked across the, the biggest number of genres. Um, at what point did you discover that uh, a, a narrative about medicine, either a story told to you or a story that you could tell, was powerful in and of itself? You know, I think that it, as far as storytelling is concerned and, uh, and medicine, I think that from the very beginning, medicine has almost has been storytelling. And if you look at you know, the, the very earliest, you know, from Hippocrates on, really what the doctor did was not necessarily you know, radiology, which is what I do, that didn't exist then. What they did is they talked to people, and they found out what healed them. And I think that whether it's a poem or a novel, in many cases, what we do, what prompts that act of writing a poem or a novel is that we have something that heals us. And, and that's why I think that, you know, they're, they're extreme, they're interrelated. I think from the very beginning, the sense of ailment or illness or something is wrong with me or inside of me, and storytelling, I think it's from, from the very beginning, it's been, it's been, they've been united. Poets write from a point of view. They write in personas. Um, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the way that, uh, as a writer, you adopt a persona or a point of view and how that differs from or is related to the persona you enter um, a room with as a physician when you talk to a patient. Well, I think that when you are, when you, the persona that you have as a doctor, when you enter the room, you have to project infallibility. And the patient knows that you're not fallible, and you know that. So the patient knows that you're not infallible, and you know that you're not infallible. That was not a Freudian slip. But it's crucial. That notion of infallibility, or that, sorry, that, that aura of infallibility um, is, is, has a psychological effect on the patient. I think it can actually 
help a patient get through something that they're going through. And it also helps you have confidence, improves performance, I think, literally and as, as a professional. Other aspects of life, too, just. Yeah. <laughs> so, sorry, it's a bad joke. <laughs> I, I, I do agree with that, though. Um, whereas with, with poetry, in particular, also with the novel, I think that it is sometimes beneficial to project fallibility or, or vulnerability. And it can actually enhance uh, how open you are and how revealing you are, not necessarily in a confessional sort of sense, but I think you can reveal emotional truth uh, only by acknowledging your own fallibility. And even as a craftsman, you have to you have to kind of be fixated on your own fallibility, you know, line for line, paragraph for paragraph, sentence for sentence. And that awareness of your own fallibility as, as a writer improves your writing because you're more likely to reach for that better word, reach for that better rhyme, uh, and, and, and go from there. So I think the difference has to do with infallibility and, and fallibility. Um, this piece that you wrote for Francis is, is kind of fascinating because it, it shows the flip side of this persona and fallibility. It shows the patient waiting, um, and it shows Maybe you could introduce it and, and read it now because I feel sure, like it sure. I, follows from. Would you like me to come up or do it from here? Why don't you come up here? So as uh, as John said, I'm, I'm a radiologist with a subspecialization in nuclear radiology, and in a sense, so this is called "The Doctor Will See You Now." That's what, that's the title of the piece, and it's kind of ironic. For a, for a radiologist to write a piece that says the doctor will see you now. Because technically, I don't actually lay eyes on the patients that I see. I see dozens of patients, sometimes 100, 120 in a day, in a, in a busy work day. But for me, they're pixels on a screen. And very rarely do I actually clap eyes on a human being during my work day. I li I, I'm pretty much in a dark office. It has to be dark because you, you need to, it's, it, it helps your interpretation of these, of these images. And uh, I've gone entire days without actually seeing a, a patient, period. So this is called The Doctor Will See You Now. And what it talks about is um, a very, you know, the, the, the rushed nature of the emergency department visit. And it, and it talks about what's called teleradiology, which um, is where studies, which are now essentially electronic packets of information, your disease, your anatomy, it's all really a mailable file. And it's how increasingly uh, in hospitals and, and radiology groups, they're actually sending those cases out overnight uh, to companies in other parts of the world uh, to be interpreted. It's a form of outsourcing. So this is called The Doctor Will See You Now. A patient is most invisible precisely where she comes to be seen. Consider the emergency room visit. The check-in receptionist looks at the screen. The other patients in the waiting area look at the television or the good housekeeping. The triage nurse looks at her watch, two fingers on the wrist at once, paying attention and making the classic gesture of impatience. <coughs> the physician's assistant looks at the vitals, a few questions, just to aim the test at the right fourth, torso, uh, head, torso upper half, torso lower half, or limbs or more than one of the above, if mention is made of a slip on the ice or a fender bender. Your name goes on the board at the front of the emergency room. 
The board is covered with names. Most of these patients, the emergency department physician has not actually seen. His time, always in short supply, is best spent with people too far gone to make eye contact. The poet, unconscious after a drinking binge. The lover, unconscious after a run-in with an ex-con ex-boyfriend. And the lunatic, unconscious after yet another fistful of goodbye world ambient. Or the car versus pedestrian head bleeds. The unhelmeted motorcyclists who have, quote, kissed the pavement, unquote. The stroked out elderly, found after who knows how many hours of soaking in their own urine. The patients who really need seeing are usually unaware they are being seen. Efficiency is crucial on a busy night, and medicine's single most easily conserved resource is FaceTime. Even in the sleepy outpatient offices of family practitioners, the patient encounter lasts roughly the duration of a haircut. In the emergency room, where stranger treats stranger and chit-chat is not expected, a physician can bring the FaceTime to as close to zero as possible. The nurse practitioner, who takes the history, looks down at his or her clipboard, making notes. A good presentation will exclude whatever differentiates this patient from the idealized disease. Every bar fight has a backstory, and every adolescent suicide attempt has a small novel leading up to it. But complex narratives do not help suture a cut or pump a stomach of a Tylenol overdose. By the way, the nurse practitioner, not the doctor, will be suturing that cut. Eyes cast down at the curved needle and thick black thread. But your complaint is not so clear cut. Fever and pain in your belly. Where is the pain? All over, or maybe it moves around, or maybe it's more in your flank or back. Abdominal pain terrifies doctors because abdominal pain could be anything or nothing at all. That is why the shrewd drug addicts seeking their opiates know that you plead dull, long-standing back pain in the outpatient office and sharp new belly pain in the emergency room. The exact combination is crucial. If you plead sharp new belly pain in the outpatient office, you risk being sent to the emergency room and vice versa. The pain inside you is not something that the naked eye would help diagnose anyway. What you need is a trip to the radiology department. The transporter stares at the, uh, above the elevator door until the B lights up. The scan diffracts a singular three-dimensional eye into several two-dimensional images. The patient laid on a scanner table is more than just bare. A scan knows a body as its architect and foreman know it. Crossbeam and joint, vent ducts and plumbing, the scaffold inside the house. Nakedness is just the house before the paint. Those sketches in Andreas Vesalius, the skin banana peeled off the latissimus dorsi, that's just the house before the siding. A scan sees the entire circumference and everything inside that circumference. The images are called cuts or slices, but the surgeon has only an incision's narrow aperture, or at best, the pinhole of laparoscopy. The surgeon peeks, the scan sees through. So who sees the scan? It's past midnight, those pixie dusk those pixie dust pixels are packed down 
into a packet of information. And that's when you, medical record number 00324952 DOB 2 slash 4 slash 61, travel to Australia or New Zealand maybe, or Switzerland or Israel. Somewhere there's daylight, not that a radiological sweatshop worker ever sees daylight. Those middle of the night studies are sent to chronologically offset countries where hospitals get their reads on the cheap. Teleradiology is not always a case of a hospital saving itself money, though. Many hospitals contract with a group of radiologists who read the studies performed on the hospital's machines. This radiology group, in turn, contracts with the teleradiology company, surely the only instance of skilled laborers outsourcing their own work overseas. So the board-certified professional who would be reading your scan during the daylight hours is currently in his bed, perhaps with a sleep mask over his eyes. Somewhere far, far away in a dark dungeon, in another time zone, a rushed radiologist double-clicks your name. The preliminary rigmarole of who you are and what exam this is starts coming out of his mouth before the screen's pale rectangles ghost his glasses. The doctor will see you now. A clock icon pops up and begins ticking in the corner of the screen. He's built for speed. More studies interpreted means more money earned. Radiologist Black Humor calls this system eat what you kill. Above all, do no harm, but kill as many as you can. He sees a single horn sticking off the bent slug that is your colon. It's too thick, it's blurry. Appendicitis. Your surgical emergency makes him feel relieved maybe even a little happy. He's found the answer. Every other organ gets its own roll through now. One must be methodical. It's not the appendicitis he finds, it's the cancer he misses that will get him sued. He's in a cubicle in Zurich, true, but litigation is imperialist. It will cross oceans and borders in search of profit. At some level, though, each roll through is perfunctory impatient. There are other cases to be read. Can't waste time. The doctor whose name is on the order, the emergency room doctor, who never actually saw you, gets the phone call just as he's walking out of the trauma bay. Mrs. Who? Um, let me see. He's checking a board at the front. Uh, of course, bed 17. Uh, go ahead. Really? Any signs of perforation? Okay, thanks for your help. The next step is putting it in a page to the surgeon on call. The last step is visiting the room. He introduces himself and delivers the diagnosis. At this point, if he gets curious, he may press on the belly where it hurts or press on the belly on the opposite side and withdraw his hand quickly and see if that hurts. And maybe even have you flex your right hip and rotate it internally. This is the obturator sign, which he read about in medical school. And he may think, yep, classic. Or he may think, who would have guessed? Barely tender at all. He's not to blame. He's been surprised enough times by the scan. He knows better than to trust the body. The laying on of hands is not faith healing, but it is faith diagnosis, because histories are vague, because pain speaks in riddles. Right shoulder can mean right shoulder, but it can also mean gallbladder. Because diseases are locked room mysteries. 
because some seek pain relief and some seek pain medication. Because he will never find if he never looks, and he can look, really look, no other way but this. The surgeon, having hung up the phone, sits up in bed at last, groggy and annoyed. He can foresee the coming operation from the diagnosis alone. He will probably do the operation laparoscopically, which involves puncturing the abdomen with tubes and distending it with air. One tube will be a sheath for a mechanical scalpel or a clamp, whichever he might need. Another tube will have a small camera and light at the end of it. A drape will cover everything but the patient's sterilized abdomen. The surgeon, in order to see what he is doing, will stare away from the patient at the real-time screen connected to his camera. He will take some photographs of his own for documentation. On the other side of the drape, the anesthesiologist, or more likely a nurse anesthetist, will stand very close to the patient's face. But the patient will be unconscious, and the nurse anesthetist will be looking at the monitors to his or her left, the ones that show heart rate, respiration rate, and oxygen saturation. If the patient starts moving at all during the procedure, the surgeon will look at the anesthetist. The nurse anesthetist will nod and push the plunger on a syringe of milky-looking paralytic or opiate. Then the nurse anesthetist will look at the surgeon, who will nod and look at his screens again. The two professionals aren't really looking at each other either. Their eyes meet through the fan-like plastic eye shields and glasses, while their noses and mouths are covered with sterile masks. 2.40 a.m., by the way, was the worst time your surgeon could get called in. He hasn't slept much, and by the time he gets into the hospital and takes out your appendix, he will have an hour and a half before he has to round on his in-house patients. It isn't enough time to drive back home and get some sleep, and in any case, he's just done the surgery on two cups of black coffee. The doctor's lounge is a limbo between night and day. The morning's danishes and muffins haven't been delivered yet. A glazed half donut from yesterday's spread, one edge flecked with a bygone neighbor's sprinkles would be as stiff as a baguette. Saltines will have to suffice. All he can do is answer emails and look out resentfully as the window brightens and get another coffee. Sometime later, on his way to the floors, he strolls past your bed in the recovery bay. You are as morphine groggy as he is caffeine wired. You do not recognize him. He was scrubbing in while you were going under. He doesn't recognize you either. He knows you're the right person because he sees your name on the chart. In a way, it is a first encounter. Thank you. Sick right now, touch wood. <laughs> One last question for you, Ahmed. Um, when you were describing sitting in your office, never seeing a patient, staring at a screen all day, I had this vision of someone looking through the Hubble telescope at the stars. And your, your poetry does, is laced through to some degree with cosmological imagery, which perhaps is just the realm of poetry, but I, I couldn't help but wonder do you ever see? Anything sublime in what you're looking at? Is there, a, is there an order to you that is? You, you know, I, I would have to say that the sublimity, uh, well, I guess I, I don't want to venture into a, an extended religious discussion, especially now that the Doctor of Divinity is sitting next to me. But I think that, for, for me at least, religion has always been a question of understanding the fundamental unity 
that underlies individuation. Uh, it's the sort of common teaching that's common to mystical traditions and whatever religion you care to talk about, whether it's Upanishad Hinduism or Sufi Islam or the Christian teachings of Meister Eckhart. And I've always been, I've always thought that radiology is proof positive of that because uh, everyone is the same on the inside, except obviously the, in the pelvic region. But but really, every, in, a, in a very real sense, everyone is the same. It doesn't matter what race you are, what religion you are, what ethnicity you are, what language you speak. As soon as you can see through with, you know, with, with ionizing radiation, um, you realize that there's, there's nobody, no one's any different than anyone else. We really are, you know, one. I'm going to um, ask Ike some questions now. Ike, uh, Ahmed just described a, a rather lengthy journey that a patient's information takes to get interpreted before it finally gets back to an actual doctor who's going to meet them as a patient. Um, your piece describes a journey of sorts, and I wonder if you could set it up for, for, the, for the audience to agree. It's a journey in time and, and space travel to some degree. Um, yes, it's, it, well, the piece is called uh, People Don't Get Depressed in Nigeria, and it, it's a piece I wrote um, in London while I was working in London, but it was reflecting on something that had happened many years earlier when I was a young uh, doctor in a small uh, rural hospital in northern Nigeria. And I think there are certainly uh, lots of journeys there because I was uh, from southern Nigeria, um, going to work in this northern Nigerian, uh, and southern Nigeria is largely Christian, northern Nigeria is largely Muslim, so it's a very different culture for me. It was a different language. Um, it was also moving from a teaching hospital where I had trained and, and um, done my first year of practice to a rural hospital that was um, very basic. And, and so, yes, there are those um, journeys. And in some ways, I think I had to make the further journey to, to, to the UK to actually sort of step back and be able to write this piece and, and reflect on, on, on what was happening then, or what I think was happening then. When, when you were um, pr practicing as a physician in Nigeria, um, what sort of stories did you have in your head uh, that, that were sort of versions of what you described, were they, were they as, were you prepared for the, the level of um, improvising, not improvising, but how much um, decision, how many decisions you would actually have to make, uh, and how much information you would have to call together into a narrative? You know, I find, I find I, listening to Amit, I found it quite interesting thinking about um, medical practice in Nigeria, and you know, certainly no radiologist sitting in dark rooms reading, you know, in, in most, in, you know, most doctors will still have to use the laying on of hands because that's, that's what they have. And I think one of the things that I wasn't prepared for as a medical student I, was that even within, you know, even within, if you like, the direness of, of the healthcare system in Nigeria, there is still a gradation within that. And so the teaching hospital where I trained had, you know, by your standards, you assumed that it was pretty primitive, but compared to where I was working in this rural hospital, it felt like I was, you know, at, um, I don't know, um, the Mary Clinic or something. 
And that was something I, I wasn't really prepared for, um, that level of um, having to take decisions. You know, I was one of two doctors in this 100-bed hospital. You know, I was a year out of medical school, and suddenly everyone was looking at me, you know, look at that doctor, which is a doctor in house, and yeah. Could you, could you read some of those images? Okay. It is a cold January morning, and I am sitting in a cafe on a busy London street. Looking out of the window, I watch people bustle determinedly along the pavement. I remember how my English friends used to complain that I walked too slowly when I first arrived in London. I thought they walked too fast, but now, in the chill of winter, I find myself quickening my own pace and lengthening my strides, eager to get back to warmth. I unfold the newspaper that I found lying on the table and struggle to keep the still unfamiliar outsized pages from encroaching upon the space of the people seated at the tables next to me. I open the newspaper and the word Nigeria catches my eye. It is funny how my mind always, almost unconsciously, seems to seek that word out whenever I am reading a newspaper. Sometimes I am fooled and the reference is to Nicaragua. But this time my eyes have found a worthy target. It's a feature on the young British Nigerian novelist Helen Oyeyemi, in which she speaks of her struggle with depression in her teenage years and the difficulty her parents face with understanding it. Because people don't get depressed in Nigeria, she says, they were like, cheer up, get on with it. The black words sliding over the page carry me back in time to another place where I too, like Helen's parents, believed that people don't get depressed in Nigeria. I'll skip a little bit. I walk out into the living room that I share with the other occupant of the small two-bedroomed house set on the edge of the hospital compound and head for the bathroom. There I retrieve my battered metal bucket and head out to draw the water for my morning ablutions. At the well, there is a gaggle of young children chattering rhythmically in Hauser as they deftly throw the black rubber guga into the well, hauling it up to fill the buckets and jerry cans surrounding it. As they see me make my way along the path lined with bowing neem trees, they shriek their greetings, laughing, excited. Sanu Likita, Sanu. I am Likita, Hausa for doctor, and I am 27 years old, freshly qualified for medical school in southern Nigeria, and posted to this small northern village for my national service. Let's skip a little bit again. I walk down the tree-lined mud path that leads from the grandly named staff quarters to the hospital pausing on the way as I meet colorfully dressed women and veiled women heading for the market in the next village, who greet me in the elaborate formal ritual of the Hausa culture. Inakwana, inakwana, I echo as they inquire after my well-being, my work, my family. We finish off with a madala, and I make my way along the low ceiling corridors to the clinic where, as usual, there is a large mass of people of all ages and sexes already gathered. Looking into the distance, I notice that work seems to have started again 
on the wall that is being built around the hospital by the Petroleum Trust Fund. It isn't clear who has decided that this is what we need most. A generator to stop us doing surgery by lantern light might have been good, as would some equipment for my colleague Wilson's fledgling laboratory. But the contracts have been awarded in far away Abuja and Kano, and so I suppose we must be grateful that the contractor at least seems to be making a good fist of building the wall, which is supposed to provide us with additional security. And he has employed local laborers to do it, so we must be grateful for that as well. A bearded young man, sorry, muttering angrily to myself, I settle into my chair and ask Sonny, the cheerful youth, who with his smattering of English has bagged the role of interpreter to summon the first patient. I hear him calling out a woman's name, having first, with an air of self-importance, bid the crowd to be quiet and to listen well. I have soon learned that everyone who works in the hospital is highly revered in the village. We all, apparently, are called Likita, and there are rumors that the theater cleaner, the hulking kaka, runs a thriving sideline in low-price hernia surgeries performed after hours in his living room. Considering how bare the theater itself is, his living room may perhaps not be that much more under-equipped for the purpose. A bearded young man, perhaps 25 years old, dressed in a blue riga, walks into the room, carrying a toddler in one arm, and with the other, solicitously leading a young woman, a girl really, dressed in the simple wax print wrapper and blouse with a loosely tied headscarf that is the common dress of all the female folk here. He greets me respectfully but with an air of distraction as Sunny ushers the girl into the seat. The young man stands guard beside her, holding the baby and focusing on my face. She sits listlessly, head bowed, silent. And where did the conversation go from there? Well, basically, the young, the, the, the young man was the husband of uh, a woman uh, who had symptoms and signs of what looked like postnatal depression. But because we had always been skeptical for medical school about depression being a Nigerian illness, we saw it as something that rich women and you know people who had far too much uh, time on their hands worried about. So the idea that this young woman in this village with such a hard life, waking up early to farm, to cook, to fetch water, that she could be suffering from depression was something I struggled to accept. And yet the more I, I tried to prove for alternative um, diagnosis, the more everything her husband said came back to it being uh, postnatal depression and he is so desperate because they've tried all sorts of things and he's brought her to hospital against the advice of his family, her family, the villagers and so I feel I have to do something and so I think well I'll, I'll, I'll take a chance and I prescribe some antidepressants 
um, for three weeks and say, can you come back and see me? And um, they come back in three weeks and I don't recognize the woman who walks back in. She's goggling and playing with her baby. And, and, um, and yeah, so it was, it was quite, um, quite an experience for me. In the piece you uh, run as the, before she leaves, um, you make mention of the fact that when you're prescribing a, 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 an, a, an antidepressant, you, you're A, not sure if they can afford it, and B, if they're going to have time to go the hours walk to go pick it up. And when you moved to England and you were in a completely different medical environment, was it not at all a little bit hard to look on the problems of your new patients with that the, a kind of reversion, a reverse version of your initial reaction to the idea that people could be depressed in Nigeria? Um, I suppose I would say... To, to scoff, not scoff at them, but to think... To become completely honest, I, I think probably yes, you know, in the, in the first few weeks. But very quickly, I realized that, um, you know, human beings who are ill are human beings who are ill and are very vulnerable. And, you know, it, it helped me put... I actually realized that they were very different contexts, but at the, at the heart of all the problems, it, 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 you still have human beings who are ill. Um, we're, Grant is obviously dipping its toe into a very complicated and rather elaborately worn out um, practice of narrative medicine with theories and classes and a whole program built around it. So forgive me for dropping in here, parachuting. Um, but I did finally read Dr. Sharon's paper, Narrative Medicine, A Model for Empathy, Reflection, Profession, and Trust from 2001. Um, and I was fascinated about it because it is like reading a piece of literary theory about, um, about an existing actual occurrence in real life. Whereas in literary theory is often about, um, it's a structural way to look at text uh, and you can apply it towards life but often to ill, Ill use. Um, you know, hence the life that Foucault had for himself to some degree. Um, but I, I was struck by the, the breakdown uh, of, of that there's four um, narrative situations, physician and patient, uh, physician and self, physician and colleagues, phys physician and society. And in some way, your piece has every single one of those um, narrative elements. You begin the, this, the piece and end it in London with, with friends and colleagues. Um, you go back in time, encounter a patient. To some degree, you're questioning yourself. And I, I wonder if it's stretched out over a long enough distance if every interaction with a patient, to some degree, becomes an interaction with yourself. Oh, I think, I think every interaction, every human interaction is, to some degree, an interaction with yourself, even if, you know, not just with patients. Um, and yes, I certainly think that for me, that's the way I, I tend to look at life. So I'm sitting here and looking at all of you and you know, I'm speaking, but I'm thinking, okay, so my, what would my grandmother in Nigeria make of me sitting in this room in New York? And, you know, it, it's all of that. And, and you know, these people try to listen to her grandson, try to say profound things that he doesn't know very much about. Um, you know, I haven't read, I haven't read the, the paper you, you um, refer to, but, but, but more seriously, you know, I do think that, um, you know, I, I wasn't thinking of any of those things when I was writing, but I, I do think that it's important, not just for um, doctors or health care 
workers, leaders. I think it's important for everyone to be conscious of and to reflect on their interaction with people and, and what it says about them and about the people they're interacting with. You, you've now published this piece. Um, you have book deals being thrown at you. You have groupies. I wish. I wish. Um, <laughs> but in all seriousness, um, you, you, this this is probably the most public piece of writing about being a physician that you've done um, whilst uh, um, being an employee of NHS. And um, I wonder if if uh, if this has had any repercussions for you in any way, or, or if people come to you with a different sort of question than the one you're used to practicing every day as a public health official. Um, I'll confess here that I actually have sort of two separate lives. So a lot of my colleagues don't even know about this grant of peace. Um, a lot of people I work with... All the subscribers we could have. <laughs> I want them to all buy five copies. They haven't, they haven't, you know, they haven't... I did have one colleague who confronted me in the corridor. I said, ah, I had a peace and grant and you didn't tell me. I saw it. I said, how did you know? He said, oh, I'm a subscriber. So that's one of the um, But no, it hasn't had any repercussions. I think one of the things that the NHS, the National Health Service in, in the UK, um, is great at actually, or used to be great at, and I can't speak for the immediate future, but uh, that's another story, is that there, there, is, there was always a recognition of the independence of the consultant. And, and particularly the public health physician to advocate on behalf of, of, the, of, of the public. And so going back to the old medical officers of health, you know, they would say things that employees would ordinarily not say. You know, say to the city mayors, you know, your, your, your sanitary system is rubbish and people are dying because of it. And, you know, you've got to do something. Um, so I haven't had any repercussions. I don't know what the future might hold because we are moving into a much more uh, politicized national health service, but for now, sure. Mm. Um, Chris, I wanted to talk to you about, speaking of speaking out and questioning, uh, your explosion of the ideas of narrative medicine in this opening piece for Granta um, struck me as that idea that this, the strongest faith can be questioned in the strongest way. And I wondered if, um, if that, if you could describe a little bit about your piece and, and address maybe how much the idea of questioning faith is part of its um, narrative engine. Um, so I guess the, 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 the piece, which started um, as an attempt to write a nonfiction piece um, about medicine um, and grew out of my repeated failure to, to write that piece, which progressed to a desperate attempt to write a story that I hope John wouldn't notice wasn't what he asked me for. Um, uh, and the failure of that also ended up with this curious hybrid that was half essentially a, a blow-by-blow account of a talk I gave um, as, a as a fellow at UCSF in the Pediatric Oncology Department um, for their grand rounds. Um, and I really have no, I had nothing perfectly grand to tell them. It's, um, uh, and I ought not to have been up there talking to them uh, um, I, what I ought to have done is just read them a story, but because it was because there were fancy people in the audience, I thought I had to be fancy and have PowerPoint slides and big words on PowerPoint slides. Um, and two of those, one of those big phrases was narrative medicine. Um, and I had heard a lot about narrative medicine and sort of worshipped particular people, some of whom may be in this room from afar. Um, 
from the, the opposite coast of the country. Uh, but I had never really met anyone who did it. I'd never done it myself. I'd never learned how to do it. Um, so I had some theoretical knowledge, but nothing that I could really jive with my own practice as a writer, uh, probably more importantly than my practice as a physician, because all the ideas I read about made perfect sense um, when I thought about how to bring them into my medical practice. Much of it was being taught to me by my mentors. They just weren't calling it that. They were, and they were also sort of pretending that they were teaching me anything, because none of these things we were, I thought they were teaching me about how to actually be present for a family and a patient in crisis. Um, all this stuff was supposed to be unteachable, so we all sort of pretended that we couldn't be taught in that yet it was happening. So on the um, so I could make these connections on the, the medical side, but then when I went, what they were essentially asking me to do in this talk was to talk to them as a writer about medicine, and I, I couldn't do it. I could read them a story that I wrote, but I couldn't really articulate anything about why stories matter in medicine, which sounds really weird, and believe me, it was really weird to be up there. Um, uh, and I think that the funny sort of, there's a breakdown in this story that happens that is a sort of grotesque shadow of what, what I think was a sort of breakdown in my thinking that happened when somebody asked me to write about medicine in a nonfiction way after I actually had met American medicine people and started to learn it and to do it, albeit in a way that was, uh, was pretty fledgling. Um, and that was suddenly the, the, uh, the question that I thought was unanswerable, um, which is why did, you know, what are, what are stories for? Um, which no one as a writer had ever asked me to answer because it's a, you know, especially coming out of a workshop in MFA tradition, you know, um, when someone says, nobody asks you that question, what is, what is your writing for? You just, you write because you're beautiful and free and you're expressing yourself. I'm looking over making the, it's not actually, it's not that simple either there. Um, but nobody, um, but, it, but that question was anathema in a way that, um, uh, that it is common sense in the world of narrative medicine. It's and a sort of a tremendous relief also that it's uh, common sense. I think that it's, you know, it's the particular genius of the concept one of the particular geniuses of the concept and the uh, people behind it is that it takes something that seems uh, like such an impossible problem, which is, which I think is, for me, sitting at this table and considering this collection of writing boils down to um, asking both patients and physicians to be to, to fully acknowledge the implications of their encounter with each other. Um, and that's I mean, kind of what, I, what I, I'm so excited about in this issue is that that seems to be that, that those implications are documented in a way that it's, uh, it's really extraordinary from both sides, from the furthest reaches of that, of either side of that continuum. Um, I just, as I often do, toss myself into the funny corner. <laughs> no idea if I answered the question. No, I mean, I, <laughs> I, I think it's, um, can you come up and take us to your furthest reach? Because it's, it's, it's uh, pretty far out there, but in a really fabulous way.
Um, so the story is about a young doctor who gets up and um, uh, starts to talk about stories in medicine and then uh, starts to sort of stutter in a sense, repeatedly comes to a place where he has nothing to say and 30 or 45 seconds or full minute silences pass while the audience gets more and more uncomfortable. Um, and eventually this um, physician, like I did, says, okay, I'm giving up, I'm just going to tell you, read, read you the story. And what I did was I read the story and everything actually was fine after that. Um, uh, in the story, things do not remain fine. Um, and so the, you know, what, maybe the, the only thing I'll say is that what if, even though the, um, there was sort of a lot of turmoil and chaos uh, in, involved in the process of writing the story and I needed, um, uh, I ended up needing help uh, to finish it from other people in a way that I don't usually need help. Um, and the people I turned to were my, my colleagues here for that help. Uh, and, that, and that ultimately my idea of it, which, um, you know, I hear different things back about what the received idea of it is, but the idea of it was that I um, uh, wanted in the end to show what, um, uh, what it looked like when somebody really needed a narrative intervention. Uh, so we'll start from the point where the person sort of gives up on the, um, on the idea of finishing this regular talk and just starts into the, um, the story that he thinks he wants to tell, which is called the Teddy Bear's Picnic. It was time once again for the Teddy Bear's Picnic. A full minute of silence, I won't do the whole minute. Then tentative applause. Wait, wait, sorry, sorry, that's not it. Not the end, I mean, that would be pretty silly if that were the whole story. It must sound like I don't know what comes next, but I have it right here, written out. This is going to sound very strange, but I was trying to decide whether or not I should tell you that my mom died yesterday. And then I was trying to decide if I had already told you. I suppose that's how post-call I am. Anyway, it seemed very important to the story that I tell you that, like I was being dishonest or disingenuous somehow by not saying that. Did I tell you already? I don't think so. Is it weird for me to tell you? I guess it is weird, but it felt equally weird not to tell you. I know more than half of you by name, after all, and you know me. It's why I was so late, because she was dying, and then she was dead. And since the story starts with her, it was important for you to know, and now we're almost out of time. I'll start again. It was time, once again, for the teddy bear's picnic. Dr. Kate Mathay rises from her seat and offers the speaker a tissue. Thank you, Kate. Sorry. You know, I don't think I should read this story. I'll do another one, as much as I have of it anyway. I was working on this new story on the plane. You'll probably say, you should have been working on this horrible talk. But I couldn't sleep. I was exhausted, but I couldn't sleep. So I'll just tell you about the teddy bear story. I'll sum it up, it's not that great, anyway. There are these bears and a little girl and some aliens and a shrink ray and her doctors get shrunk and have an adventure inside her body and there are some magic ponies who are ultimately responsible for all the sickness and confusion and unhappiness in the girl and the hospital and in this country. I guess you have to read it or hear it really to make sense of it for it not to sound totally ridiculous. But the important part is that there was something about this story that I once thought married my own troubles with the troubles of my patient. 
this poor, doomed six-year-old girl with a brain tumor. I was away in Boston stalking my ex-boyfriend the last time she got sick, and I happened to get back on the night she died. I went from the airport right to her room, but she had been dead for hours. I said something to her parents about how I believed they had made the right decisions on her behalf, and how much I respected them and admired them, and how much I would miss her. And these were all true statements. And walking home, I bawled my head off, but I didn't know if I was crying because this little girl had died or because my ex had told me to stop stalking him, that dogs would marry cats before he consented to get back together with me, that Pat Robertson would have a snowball party in hell before he wanted to get back together, that he wanted me to go away and never come back. So I kept hearing him say that, like good Gollum says to evil Gollum in The Lord of the Rings, when that poor creature is having his psychotic break. Go away and never come back. Go away and never come back. And while I was walking home, I kept asking him to come back, calling his name out loud, except intermittently I was using this little girl's name instead. Even as I said it over and over, I thought, how strange and what am I doing? I got home and made a sort of rehearsal of a suicide. I sat around for a while with a telephone cord around my neck not tied to anything. Oh, I tied it to a shower rod for a while, and I tied it to a pull-up bar for a while, but I also tied it to my ankle, and to a teapot, and to the cat. I even tied it to my balls, and how was that supposed to put me out of my misery? <laughs> After that night, I sort of had a nervous breakdown for the next few weeks, a relatively functional one, I suppose, though poor Dr. Lockley, who was stuck on service with me, would probably disagree since she was the one doing all the work while I was crying in the bathroom. But the point of this story is not that I was crazy, which I suppose I am in many ways, or that a Hemong fellowship makes you want to kill yourself, which I suppose it does in many ways, but that for a few moments there, I didn't know who my heart was breaking for. And I was going to tell you, when I give this talk, I usually tell people that the story with the teddy bears and the aliens was somehow about those few moments that it made some kind of useful, sympathetic noise. But now, today, in this last hour, actually, that seems like the wrong thing to say and the wrong story to tell. The other story, the new story, goes something like this. When I was a child, I wanted to be sick. This was partly because my mother, who was not always nice to her children, was always nice to me when I was sick. She was often sick herself, though almost never actually unhealthy. The important exception, of course, being that she had breast cancer while she was carrying me and was treated with a mastectomy just a few weeks before I was delivered. But it was also because sick people, and especially sick children, were special, and I wanted to be special. That's all I have. And I'm out of time. I know Kate is pointing at her watch. I'm almost done. There's no more of that story written down, but I can tell you what happens in it. I can sum up the important parts in this story, the narrator's mother breaks his ankle with a hammer and takes him to the emergency room when he's three. It's the first of a bunch of treatments. I mean, that's what she calls them. She says she's making him better, which in some twisted sense she is, since he actually likes being sick. He gets a fever in the hospital, and they think he has osteomyelitis, but it's just his mom pooping in his IV or whatever, and this whole thing starts. This whole long thing starts where she puts him in the hospital again and again. And then 
this is where before in the old story the evil magic ponies would usually come in because what kind of child could ever conceive of such an action or plan it out or take any satisfaction in it? This kid who is eight or nine at this point walks into his mother's bedroom one night and breaks her ankle with a baseball bat. And she shrieks and writhes in her bed, how she cried and cried with her pillow clutched over her face. It was like she was smothering herself. But when she can talk, she says to the kid, go call the ambulance. Mommy's fallen down the stairs. I'll stop there. It gets even better from there. Uh, it's, it's quite an extraordinary story. And I feel like what um, is so extraordinary about it is the way that it channels the chaos of story. That the way that story can be a vessel for many different things which are broken. And I, I wonder how you feel about that as a physician who believes to some degree in narrative medicine when you have to believe that stories are true. I mean, how much interpretation can you put on a story? You can say that's a good story and maybe the story is figuratively true, but it you can't be entertained. You need the truth, right? Oh, um, I don't know. Really? No. Probably. Um, I think that um, uh, the leap of faith in that story is that does, is is not um, is it possible to tell a true story? Is it possible to have properly represent your experience? Um, but is it possible? The thing that this narrator doesn't believe or doesn't know about really which seems sort of more sweet um, uh, and hopeful to me, is that, other, is that what he doesn't believe is that, that anyone will ever listen. Um, and the faith that he, that he doesn't have, that I, that I don't as a physician and a writer um, have a problem with is, uh, is, the, 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 is with the prospect that, it, um, that, it is, that it's possible to, to actually be heard. Um, and so, I mean, the narrative, what I think of as the narrative intervention in the story actually comes after the story, and it comes after this lady, the chairman of the department, gets up and leads this person off the stage, and then everything that happens after that, which happens in a, in a community, and doesn't happen in this person's fevered, tortured imagination, or history, or memory, um, or in his imagined experience of other people. Um, including his patients, um, but happens in the context of conversation with real people is the narrative intervention. And the, I mean, the, the thing that I didn't know um, three years ago when I gave that disastrous talk and what I do know now um, is that narrative medicine happens when a group of people sit down and all write to the same, right to, a, if not the same, then at least um, a similar stimulus, and then turn to each other and say, this is what I wrote. I'm, I'm committing to this statement, and I'm subscribing to the notion that you can hear it and we can talk about it. Um, and the way in which that, um, that scenario radically alters what I feel like it what I feel like it means to ask what our stories for um, is, is, I guess, is part of the um, 
hard to express, um, and, 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 and probably why I still turn to a, a story instead of a straightforward or straight nonfiction piece to try to talk about. The piece uh, is, in some ways, kind of an apotheosis of all Chris Adrian pieces, because it, it, it contains the magic ponies, it contains the sort of magical realism of, of, of um, Children's Hospital, and, and some of the, the really um, the darkness of Gob's grief, and it, it feels at some point you're you're bringing up the ways that you've told stories, um, and and diffusing them, or or uh, at least looking at them uh, through through the eyes of someone who's looking at the purpose of narrative. Do you think you can use those elements again now that you're you've put this all down in a nonfiction piece? Do you plan to? You know, I don't actually know. Um, I think that, you know, part of the, um, I didn't like the, um, for a couple of different granted events, I've been, you know, that little, little puppy with the um, pom-pom on his head that follows the dog and pony show. Um, uh, but I, I've gotten, I've talked about, and this means that I've gotten the chance to, more than usual, um, in a typical month or year, I've gotten to um, meet, um, different sorts of folks in the medical field and be asked questions about my writing by them, especially being asked questions by students who tend to ask the most penetrating um, questions and the one, ones that are hardest to answer sometimes because they're, um, uh, they're, um, uh, they're the least, um, they, they ask questions without, because they really want to know, I guess because they really want to know the answer, which is not always the case in, um, some forums, um, uh, but one of the questions was how um, was essentially have you, you you keep talking about how you've changed or grown up as a physician and how you've changed or grown up as a writer, but why? But how do they go together? Um, and I think that some part of growing up as a writer in a funny way is is going to, is going to be or has been leaving medicine behind as a um, as a subject, and which. It's not to say that I think I'll stop writing about what I've been writing about, but it, it almost feels like an acceptance of the implications of what I think I was talking about when I first tried to answer your first question, which is that, um, uh, was, I guess, was sort of accepting the implications of the statement that medicine actually contains, and I think this may be what you were, uh, I think this is, I think what I heard you talking about in the very beginning about why everything means so much when we're sick um, and why it's so utterly strange to be called on to live as a physician and a patient in a continually heightened awareness of the meaning of your life and the need for your life to mean something. Um, so if part of that, if part of growing up as a writer and a physician is, is figuring out that um, when you're in the hospital or the medical world, you really are, it, it's, um, you really are, whether or not you can do it all the time, whether or not it's even advisable to do it all the time, um, being asked to, um, continually consider, um, what it means to be alive, um, then if I stop writing about not necessarily magic ponies, but magic ponies in hospital gowns with clowns on the hospital gown. Um, uh, 
if I'm still, I think that part of figuring out how intimately wedded um, medicine and life are um, is figuring out a way to write about life without writing about medicine. Um, and that that somehow is an acceptance or integration of the way in which, um, uh, in, in the scariest way possible, they're the same thing. You mentioned students' questions, and I imagine that some of you might have some questions for Amit or Chris or, or Ike. Um, would anybody want to raise their hand? Um, Chris has an actual stuffed magic pony to give you for the first person. Makes it real in a sense, 
um, in the sense that uh, you may, you know, um, you may be, you may not. I feel like I, in some ways you can't necessarily really know what you're thinking before it's written down. I mean, I think that it, it works that way for me. Um, and the um, and then the and the the other benefit um, aside from sort of really knowing actually what happened in a sense and, and, and what's going um, and what my actual reaction to the experience was um, for being forced to commit to uh, reaction um, is that there is something about, I think there's something, I mean, if maybe we all were limited to one meaningful experience in the course of our practice as physicians or healthcare providers, then we probably could all certainly get away with never reflecting on it or becoming this, uh, becoming uh, people um, who acknowledge that something terrible or something wonderful just happened. If it happened just once, then then fine. And, and for the rest of the time, we really were just technicians. I don't think it would necessarily there'd be not that much necessarily to be gained or lost in uh, in concrete reflection about our practice. Um, but I think that as you go on and not very far on, I don't think you have to get very far in your first clinical experiences before the accumulated horror or wonder of what you see starts to have a significant impact on the self that you both present to your patients and the self that you live in and the self that you bring home to the people you love. Uh, the idea that you, um, uh, that you wouldn't um, think at length about what everything you see and experience in your clinical practice means to you um, is, I mean, it's absurd on the one hand, but it also is very clear to me that, we, uh, that we're actively discouraged from going too far with that or from sustaining that kind of practice in a way that um, uh, that would actually keep a lot of people out of trouble on the physician and the, and the patient end in this, this whole course of business. I would say that you know, the upside benefit of reflection, uh, whether it's you know, medicine or writing, is you, you can refine your performance bring yourself closer to the physician or the writer that you want to be. And I think that holds true in pretty much every endeavor uh, or every skill that you try to uh, acquire and develop. I think the downside and the limitation of it is, alas, the downside of all uh, past-directed thinking. Uh, you can't change the past. And unfortunately, you do have to sometimes, on reflection, come to terms with the fact that you were not the clinician that you wanted to be, that you were inadequate, that you made a mistake, that you did in a moment of casual neglect <coughs> or selfishness or wanting to get out on time or wanting to cut corners, wanting to speed up, wanting to get that note done and write the note as quickly as possible, get on to the next patient. You made a mistake and you aren't fallible.
I did this when there was a launch event in London, and my first thing I said before I started was, um, I'm a doctor, not a writer. Um, because I, I consider these guys writers, they've got published books, they've got stuff, they're used to doing this. I, um, I, don't, I don't consider myself a writer. But then I think saying I consider myself a doctor again, it's probably false, given that I don't practice medicine the way that most people understand what those to do. So I suppose in the end I just, I, I don't think a lot about it. <laughs> <laughs> um, I guess both, both and neither in a funny way. Like I, in the past I've tended to take shelter in one identity and the other one I felt like things weren't so going so hot in the, in, in, in the, other, the other one. Um, but it's, um, uh, I think it's one of the ways that, and again, this is something that a student asking me questions helped me articulate, but one of the ways to feel like I could do both jobs well was to stop thinking of them as separate, uh, start, stop, stop trying to think about my, my life as either a physician or as, a, as being about being a physician or about being a writer and try to think of some other larger category that became both things. Um, and you know, the first one that came to mind was good human beings um, uh, and, um, uh, you know, good, um, uh, good partner, good father one day, I, I hope. Um, all of these, were, the, the idea of being, your life being in service to something that, um, of which medicine or writing or acting or um, you know, salsa dancing, hip hop dancing, um, and maybe too light for hip hop dancing in school, sadly. <laughs> As much as I like step up, um, uh, that, that if you if you did that, it was a student coming asking me. I'm really interested in neuroscience, and I'm really in interested in um, uh, in writing. And I keep asking my advisors, um, how do I combine these two things? And they say, well, you're a brilliant neuroscientist, so I, I'm not we're not letting you go from neuroscience, but you can be a science writer. And she kept saying, I hate science writing. I don't want to be a science writer care less about science in that way that they're talking about, and they, they, they all got very worried about her. Um, uh, but when it became clear to the first of our conversation was she was somebody who was just really interested in consciousness, and she was not going to be satisfied just doing biological um, uh, experiments in, um, or investigations into consciousness. She wanted to actually use her consciousness to investigate the idea of consciousness in like crazy, um, uh, in really crazy, exciting ways that involve using fiction. Um, and once, and when I told her that, um, she said, well, we both had this sort of oh moment. Um, uh, and that, and so I was grateful to, to figure a way out of what felt like a, um, a question that I wasn't, that I was gonna resolve by losing my sanity or giving one or the other um, job. I think what's interesting is that, in a sense, I talked about in a sense, almost he's neither, or feels like he's neither. And Chris talks about unifying them, or perhaps even transcending them. I'm actually going to come down to one side or the other. I'm one of the. I, I'm very fortunate in that, from a very early age, I wanted one thing, which is to be a writer. And many people um, think to themselves, like, well, you know, you spend so much. You spend, I eventually devoted my entire twenties to becoming a doctor, and. Then I actually chose a specialty that has a very long post-medical school course. I mean, 
it's five years of radiology and one year of regular fellowship and everything, but throughout the whole time, I've wanted nothing else. I've wanted one thing the entire time, which is to be aware. And I chose radiology uh, specifically because it was conducive to the writing life. And uh, so I consider myself, you know, I consider, you know, people would probably think that, oh, you're, you're, you are a doctor and then, you know, you write. I consider myself a writer who makes, you know, ends meet by practicing radiology. Um, and I feel that, you know, if, if I waited tables uh, for a living and was a writer, people would consider me a writer first and they would just go, oh, he's just waiting tables to make ends meet. But the way I perceive radiology is the same way that that it's, it's the equivalent of waiting tables. It's just that, like, look, both my, both my parents were doctors and my sister's a doctor. I once said that she's a doctor and she's married to a doctor. And it's pretty much all I ever knew growing up. And it was just the profession, it's just what you did. If, if my parents, like, were lawyers, I'd probably be a lawyer. And if my parents had an Italian restaurant, I'd probably be a restaurant. And you guys would be asking me, how is it possible? You know, if you guys would have a food issue, and I brought you that, you guys would be like, how can you possibly, you know, this and then which which are you but for me I want one thing and I am one thing which is a writer. Well afterwards Ahmed is going to be leading the my whole family is full of doctor support group. Um, <laughs> <laughs> downstairs at the bar around the corner. Um, I'll be well, the writer. I, I didn't end up marrying one. I married an English teacher. So. Uh, <laughs> um, well I think we've, we've run out of time here. Um, but these guys will be around. Um, their books are here. Ahmed's uh, novel, Partitions, is here. I don't see his poetry collections, but um, it's a ferociously intelligent and, and very warm novel. I hope you um, get a chance to read it. Um, several of Chris's books are here. Uh, they should come with uh, various Surgeon General warnings um, because they do mess with your mind, but in a wonderful way that um, only someone who pushes the limits of, of what he believes a story can do uh, can do. Uh, and there are also copies of Granta, um, which uh, we have a limited number of copies, um, and I'm sure Ike and Chris and, and Amit would be willing to sign them. But um, huge thank you to you for having us here. Uh, it feels like we're cr crossing a divide from storytelling into medicine, and that's exactly what I hope this issue would do. So thank you. I want to thank the readers for their remarkable works and the conversation we've had. I also want to thank John for being here and making this uh, connection. I think it's important that this is taking place in the hospital. This is the old Presbyterian Hospital. This is a place of, uh, of, of clinical work and healing. And the fact that this literary world and the world of medicine is happening right here, I think, is very important. Um, so thank you for being here. I just want to make a quick announcement. First, the uh, books of Chris, as, as well as I met, are in the back, and the issue of Grant are in the back for you to purchase. The second is, we, I wanted to announce a couple of um, narrative medicine rounds coming up. November 7th, uh, Will Reiser will be here speaking about his movie 5050 and the work that he's done there. And then December 5th, Malcolm Cox, who's the academic officer for the VA system, will be here speaking. Our work in narrative medicine has been increasingly involved with uh, the work in the VA. So we look forward to uh, being with you guys here next month. Thank you. Good. I'm learning from the best. He's good. Just got. Hey.
Oh, yeah. Snoozing. Oh, I should turn this off. I just recorded myself saying that. Oh, 